So many aspects of the Buddha's teachings about the nature of suffering and the possibilities of freedom resonate easily with our common sense understanding of ourselves and the world. For example, the importance of non-harming as the basic moral principle of living together in community, whether it's local communities or the global community. The understanding that all things in our lives are changing, inside and outside, and that if we're attached or grasp at that which in its very nature changes, (coughs) then we suffer. In some sense, this is very obvious. If we're attached to youth, If we're attached, (laughs) just for the recording, I nodded my head at that. (laughs) If we're attached to summer, we suffer in the winter. If we're attached to what's pleasant, then we suffer when things get unpleasant. So this is obvious. You know, if we're attached to that which in its nature changes, there's going to be difficulties. So all of this really seems quite obvious, I think, to most of us, even if we're not always living that understanding, but it's not difficult to understand. There's one aspect of the Buddhist teaching, though, that offers a profoundly different perspective on things, profoundly different view of ourselves and the world. And it's one that really challenges our entire worldview. And that is the deep understanding and realization of what in Pali is called anatta. And that's translated sometimes as non-self or selflessness or emptiness, emptiness of self. And realizing anatta is in some ways the great liberating jewel of the Buddha's teaching. And over the years, I've given a lot of talks and written a lot about how this view of self is created in the mind, how the mind constructs this idea of self and how it sustains it. But tonight, what I'd like to do is to offer something of a collage of just reflections and practices that might help us, even briefly, to actually touch into the realization of it so that we can experience a real taste of what selflessness means. So the first important understanding is that the self is not some existing thing that we need to get rid of. So our practice is not about getting rid of the self because it's not there in the first place. (laughs) The whole notion of self is an idea, it's a view, it's a perspective 
that we bring to our experience. It's not some thing that's residing within us. And of course, the Buddha talked of this view of self as being wrong view. So one of the great Tibetan meditation masters of the last century, his name was Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, and he was a teacher to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and just an, an amazing teacher, and his writings are just crystal clear. So this is what he said about this. The idea of an enduring self has kept you wandering helplessly in the realms of samsara for countless past lifetimes. It is the very thing that now prevents you from liberating yourself and others. If you could simply let go of that one thought of I, you would find it easy to be free and to free others. So in some sense, our whole practice is really geared towards the understanding or the means for letting go of this view of I, this view of self. The Buddha offered a very brief, succinct, and clear practice for doing this. This was advice (coughs) that he gave to his son, Rahula, after Rahula had uh, become a novice monk. He said, see everything with perfect wisdom. This is not mine. This is not I. This is not myself. And maybe this one simple instruction would be enough (coughs) if we could remind ourselves of it as we kind of ride the roller coaster of our life experience. Thoughts arise, not mine, not I, not myself. Difficult sensations arise, not mine, not I, not myself. Different mind dramas, different emotions, not mine, not I, not myself. But as we know, although these instructions are so simple, and clear, you know, it's not, it's not difficult to understand. But it's not easy to apply, as we know, when we're caught up in the forward momentum of our lives. You know, in the midst of our daily lives, how often do we remember to apply that instruction? Not mine, not I, not myself. Probably not that often. So one exercise that I found very helpful in beginning this experiential exploration of selflessness is what I call from am to is. So I first kind of played with this when I came across a teaching of Lady Sayadaw that's L-E-D-I, Lady Sayadaw, who was one of the great Burmese meditation masters. 
He lived at the end of the 1800s, beginning of 1900s, and very renowned. And in this teaching, he listed some of the variations of wrong view. So he had a whole list of wrong view. And the list startled me. So this was what, this was, what was on the list of wrong view. I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm excited, I'm afraid, I'm bored. What was startling to me when I read this was that all these phrases were simply the common expressions of how we live. I mean, it's just so common, you know, we're speaking with them, oh, I'm angry today, or I'm happy today, or I'm this or that. And it's not the emotions or mind states themselves that are the wrong view. It's the I am. The mind has co-opted these arising experiences and claims them as being I or mine. So it was very striking to me to see that just our ordinary way of understanding ourselves and communicating what we're experiencing Wrong view is embedded right in that. So, so the first step that I found to be helpful in this from am to is was to really look at and watch out for the felt experience of I am. You know, just throughout the day whether it's in formal meditation or just moving about, it might be the felt sense of I am in walking. You know, we're just walking, even just going for a walk. And mostly, there's that internalized feeling of I'm walking. Or as we're having different emotions, focus the attention on what it feels like when we're experiencing it as I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm excited. Or other mental activities, I'm thinking, I'm planning, I'm judging. You can make your own list of where the I am feeling is most predominant. Now what's interesting about this is since I am is really the default setting of our minds, Almost any time we look, we can feel it. So it's not like you have to be on the watch for some rare esoteric arising. <laughs> it's how mostly we were just living and, and we're feeling it. But very rarely are we paying attention to what it feels like. It's just, that's what we take ourselves to be. So the first step in this is just tuning in from time to time of what it feels like. And then make the move once you're feeling, again, I'm thinking, I'm judging, I'm walking, I'm moving, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. In whatever moment you tune into the I am, then just make a little mental shift to there is. There is walking, there is thinking, there is planning, there is judging, there is all of those same 
physical or mental activities. What I noticed, and it was very striking and in a way very obvious, in the I am, in that mode, when I tuned into how it felt, there was a contraction. It was kind of it's like imprisoned in the I am. And as soon as my mind just made this simple shift to there is, from I'm walking to there is walking, right in that moment, could feel a greater spaciousness, letting go of the contraction of I am. So this is a very immediate feedback. And it's not hard to feel. We just have to look and pay attention to it. So one way that uh, you might experiment with this, and it's something that we've been talking about all the week, um, you know, we've given the instruction of in the sitting there is a body. I found that that phrase is very useful in the walking as well, especially kind of at a more normal speed. So just walking. So instead of I'm walking, just using the phrase there is a body, so it makes the mind a little broader just from doing that, and then walking and seeing what is being experienced. And in the walking, within the framework there is a body, what's actually being felt are simply sensations in space. The notion of body actually disappears, even though we're using the phrase to ground us, there is a body. As soon as we do that and start walking and feeling what's arising, it's just sensation in space without any form, without any boundary, without any sense of a solid body. And that, again, becomes a a very easy doorway into feeling the selflessness of it all. It's just sensations being known. Although these are very simple exercises, you know, as a way of just stepping out of the contraction of I am, uh, they have profound implications. So this is from the Buddha. He said, by rightly understanding I am, one makes an end of suffering. The eradication of I am is the attainment of Nibbana here and now. So this is not an insignificant move. (laughs) But what's surprising is we're just not really paying attention to it. And so this exercise from am to is, you might, if you're interested, just play with it in the course of a day. And notice the contraction of our usual way of being in the world, the I am. I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling that. And in those moments when you feel that, then just shift to there is and notice the difference. Okay, so that's one little exercise you could do in terms of exploring the experience of anatta. The second experience, or the second exercise, is what I call dreaming oneself into existence. 
And this has to do with setting the intention to be aware of the quickly passing thoughts in the mind. Not the loud, demanding ones, not the problematic ones, not the big stories, just you know, the almost endless stream. It's just these quick thoughts that mostly we're not aware that, we're hap- that, that are happening. Uh, and we don't pay much attention to them because they don't seem very problematic. You know, it's just, just like a sound arising and passing. So one time on a self-retreat, I just started noticing you know, some of these quickly passing thoughts. And it reminded me of an experience that I think is common to many of us. Do you know that moment sometimes when you first wake up in the morning and then if you don't just jump out of bed, you might just go back into a dream state for a minute or two you know, and then wake up again. When I was watching these quickly passing thoughts, I realized that was the same experience. It was, it was like when these thoughts come and we're unaware of them, when we're not aware that they're there, it's like we're going along, mindful, mindful, mindful. And then one of these thoughts passes through, not aware of it. In that, the moments of that thought, it's like dropping into a dream state for those few moments. And then it's like we wake up and we're mindful again. So when I noticed this, then I began to just look a little more carefully at the content of those very seemingly innocuous thoughts. Again, these are not the big dramatic ones. These are just the quick ones, light ones. But what I saw was that the content of these thoughts very often revolved around some sense of I am. Maybe it's just a quick thought of a plan or a judgment or a like or a dislike or... So I realize that by not paying attention to these many quick thoughts, to the many light thoughts, I was dreaming myself into existence. You know, because each of those moments of unawareness, it was like settling back into a dream. And even though they were quick and light, for each of those moments that the mind was lost in them, the mind was being reconditioned in one way or another. It was having an effect, but because it wasn't obvious, it was ignored. So then it became, for me, it became a lot of fun. So just going through the whole day, I, I kind of I set the intention, okay, just keep an eye out for these. You know. And it was just so interesting. You know, and Many times, because I had set the intention, I actually could catch them and, and be aware that they were there. And then, of course, many times I missed it and just was aware as I came out and then realized, oh, I was just lost in a 30-second dream, you know, and then out. So it was very engaging for the mind and very liberating because it was freeing the mind from a lot of these small moments of I am. 
And so again, there was that taste of the selflessness of it all, of freedom from that. From am to is, dreaming oneself into existence. The next two reflections around selflessness really have to do with the relationship of craving and desire to the sense of self. And I think, in one sense, it's quite obvious, you know, when we're caught up in craving or desire, there usually is a very strong sense of, I'm wanting something, you know, so that sense of self is usually very strong in moments of craving, which is why I gave the whole talk on craving and the end of craving and how to really touch that. So two kind of reflections that in some way were transformative in my practice. They arose in some of my self-retreats over these last couple of years. So in one retreat I was just sitting and one of the teachings of the Buddha, which I had read countless times, and you're probably very familiar with it, it's just one line that arises, appears a lot in the different suttas. It says, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. You know, and that's a statement that sometimes becomes the song of enlightenment. You know, when people get enlightened in the suttas, often they will say, and I realized that whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And it's sometimes that teaching prompts awakening. And so people hear that and, okay, we'll try it once. (laughs) Just listen, take it in. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Okay, so I was, I was just sitting, I was you know, on retreat, sitting meditation, and that thought came to me. But it came in a different way. You know, instead of, you know, my reading, and uh, yeah, yeah, that seems clear. Rather, that thought, whatever has the nature to rise will also pass away. It's like, because it arose in my mind while sitting, it actually became part of the sitting. And the implication of that understanding, that whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away, is that there is nothing to want. Because whatever we want will also just pass away. And this was applied specifically in this context to the meditative process itself. You know, so the other night when I was talking about the craving for becoming and how that creeps into our meditation where we're kind of leaning into the next moment, thinking that somehow we're here, but as it becomes this, somehow it'll be resolved, not realizing that it's just another next moment that will also pass away. So to drop this right into the middle of your sitting, you're in the process, you're in the flow of things arising and passing, you might call this phrase to mind, whatever has the nature to arise, right in our meditative experience, 
whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Therefore, there's nothing to want. And in that moment, when, when my mind really grokked the implication of that, because everything is going to arise and pass away, there's nothing to want, I could feel the mind drop back just for a few moments into not wanting. Not wanting anything. Not wanting the next moment, not wanting more concentration, not wanting to be more mindful, not, just not wanting. And that was an amazing moment. That was really a taste, even briefly, of the third noble truth. You know, the Buddha talked about suffering as the first noble truth, of dukkha, the cause of dukkha, which is craving, the end of dukkha, which is the end of craving. So before I had, I was undertaking my practice with the idea that, yeah, maybe in 30 years or five lifetimes I'll reach the end of craving. You know, it was like the far-off goal. And I could understand it, but it seemed quite distant. And then at a certain point I realized, yes, the final eradication of craving might take a couple of weeks. (laughs) (laughs) But we can actually experience the end of craving for a moment at any time at all. We can actually taste it, we can touch it, we can feel it, we can experience it. And it's really profound. There's nothing to want. And you can just feel the mind. It's like that. It just drops back. It drops back into peace. You can say it drops back into emptiness. It drops back into selflessness. It drops back into openness. It drops back into not wanting. So for me, that was really a it was a moment that has stayed with me, and I use it in my practice now, you know, just from time to time. I remind myself that and feel that connection to the experience of not wanting. And in that not wanting anything, there is no I am at all. There's no sense of self at all. It's really a moment of peace. It's a moment of completion. And even though it's just for a moment or two, it's real. You know? And so I would really encourage you to play with that and to touch that. And it's not hard to do. It's just remembering. So in the same vein you know, of experiencing the selflessness of non-craving, of not wanting, of not leaning forward. I think it was mentioned either this morning or yesterday. Uh, I think it was Bart mentioning the the lump of foam, you know. And so the Buddha gave five images for the different aggregates, you know, which comprise the mental physical pheno- phenomena. So he called you know, the body is like a lump of foam. This is not foam rubber, you know. On, foam on water. And then, as, as Bob mentioned, Vedan feeling was bubbles in a stream. Perception is like a mirage. 
mental, all mental formations are like a plantain tree or a banana tree. The trunk has no core to the trunk. The trunk is just uh, concentric leaves. You know? So when you go to the center of it, there's nothing there. The center is empty. And then consciousness as a magic show. So again, I had read these images many, many times. But I always took them um, sort of in reading them, I would take them as just you know similes and a description rather than an instruction. But in this one retreat, it came to mind because I had read it so often. So I, I took it as an instruction, as was suggested this morning, because sometimes images are very powerful. And so I'd be sitting, feeling the body, you know, just feeling the flow of sensations in the body. And, oh, the body's like a lump of foam. And that was just what it felt like. It's just, you know, just the bubbling of different sensations arising and passing. But again, there was a further implication And that is that the body will never be anything else but a lump of foam. So there's nothing to want. You know, so often, I've seen in my own practice and with many, many yogis, so often we're feeling the sensations, feeling them so that they become this. You know, we're feeling some tension, so the tension releases. We're feeling some tightness or unpleasantness, so we can open it up or whatever. (laughs) Whether there's tension or not tension, it's still a lump of foam. (laughs) And it will always be just a lump of foam. And when I realized that, just through this image... The whole system relaxed. There's nothing to become. Because it's not going to become anything different in that respect. So in the same way as with there's nothing to want because whatever arises will pass away. The feeling of yeah, the body is just a lump of foam. And this is the nature of the experience of the body. It doesn't, we don't need for it to become anything different than it is. Because whatever we think it should become is still that same old lump of foam. It had that same effect of just the mind dropping back into not wanting. The reason I'm emphasizing all of this so much is that I've just seen so clearly that craving for becoming right in the meditation practice is so strong, you know, and just it's just some wanting of something. But that just keeps us bound on the we just keeps us bound on the wheel of changing phenomena, and the freedom is in not wanting. The third noble truth: the end of craving, even if it's for a few moments. But we can touch that, we can taste it and feel the peace of it. From am to is, 
dreaming oneself into existence. There's nothing to want. Another place where the I am becomes very strong is in our attachments to our views and opinions about things. We have views and opinions about almost everything. (laughs) And to a large extent, we have views and opinions about things we know nothing about. (laughs) But it does not stop the mind. (laughs) So I'll just tell you one story of this. And it was so striking to me. And it was incredibly freeing when I realized kind of the tendency towards this attachment and clinging to views and opinions. So this goes back to when I was teaching uh, at that first summer Institute of Naropa in 1974. And that, that was like a Buddhist Woodstock. You know, it, it was like the first there were gathering of several thousand people, you know, came from all over the country and different parts of the world. You know, and Ramdas was teaching and Trungpa Rinpoche was teaching. So it was this big spiritual happening. Uh, it was quite amazing. And so I was teaching meditation uh, at that summer school. And in fact, the whole, this whole Vipassana kind of momentum started right there. Because from teaching there, people then you know, just invited us, oh, would you come teach a retreat in South Carolina and you know, Wisconsin, just all over the country. And so it was a very kind of grassroots unfolding. So I was teaching at Naropa and there was a visiting Tibetan Lama, one of the great, great Tibetan teachers, Dujam Rinpoche. He's the head, he was the head of one of the great lineages and revered, really, as a great enlightened master. And I saw a poster for a talk that he was given, giving. And somewhere on the poster, it said... Dujam Rinpoche, and I'm not sure I'm quoting it exactly, but the basic message was incarnation of Saraputra. Now, Saraputra was the chief disciple of the Buddha, second only to the Buddha in his awakening and enlightenment. He was from the Theravada Burmese understanding, Arhants, enlightened beings, are not reborn. So I saw this poster, and it's like my mind went on tilt. (laughs) Because on the one hand, this is a great enlightened being, incarnation of Saraputra. And on the other hand, that's impossible. (laughs) Saraputra wasn't reborn. So then, kind of in that state of, you know, how to hold this, I came to a startlingly clear understanding, which is that I had no idea whether he was (laughs) the incarnation of Saraputra or not. (laughs) I really didn't have a clue. All I knew was the Burmese think this is impossible. The Tibetans say, well, he is. So to realize two things, to realize that I didn't know and that I didn't have to have an opinion about it. And before that, 
I could easily have gotten into some big Dharma argument. <laughs> oh, no, that's impossible. He definitely, you know. How often do we do that? You know, we get caught up in our views and our opinions and get into all kinds of conflicts. And, and sometimes it's about things we may know a little bit about, but very often it's about things we really don't deeply know. We've just been conditioned to have a view, an opinion. It's so freeing to be able to say, don't know. And that I don't have to have a view about what I don't know. Again, it's the loosening of this contraction of self, my views, my opinions. Kind of a a corollary of this, which is a little different, but in the same vein. Strong sense of self can arise, especially in situations of some conflict, you know, where we're attached to being right, right? And that's what's fueling, you know, our energy. Well, in this situation, I'm right. I would really pay attention to those moments because even if one is right in some particular context, the attachment to that, I'm right, is a contraction. We really are narrowing ourselves and contracting ourselves, and it makes real communication impossible. So I would just you know, pay attention to those situations and see if it's possible to let go of that sense, that attachment to being right. And I think of some expression which uh, somewhat in vogue in spiritual circles, would you rather be right or be free? Right. And in those moments, if you pay attention to the difference, it's a no-brainer. Okay. So perhaps the subtlest hideout of the sense of self, the one that's the most difficult to see, is with our identification with consciousness itself, with awareness itself. Because, you know, with practice, and many of you, you you know, I've been practicing a while, and I think probably have a pretty good sense, at least at times, you know, it's different sensations come and go, and thoughts come and go, and even big emotional dramas come and go. And we begin to get some sense of, yeah, these are all impermanent in their flow, and maybe get a sense of their impersonality, that they're arising out of conditions and passing away. But mostly... I think we have the sense, well, I'm the one who's knowing it all. I'm the one who's observing it. You know, and in that identification with knowing, we have created the witness. We have created the observer. So it's challenging and interesting 
to begin to play with ways of cutting through the identification with knowing, with awareness, with consciousness. And there are a variety of ways of doing this. And the different techniques or methodologies for cutting through you know, this subtle identification with the knowing. Uh, different traditions have different uh, techniques for it. So one is just a framework of understanding, and this is really comes out of the Vipassana teachings. And I've talked about this in some of the groups. That in every moment of experience, just two things are happening. There's knowing and an object. Knowing of a sight, knowing of a sound, knowing of a smell, a taste, a thought. And so our life, and really what we're calling self, is just this pairwise progression, moment after moment. Knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. Breathing in, in breath, knowing of the in breath. Breathing out, there's the sensation of the breath and the knowing of it. The rise, the knowing of it. The fall, the knowing of it. In every moment, that's all that's happening. There's the knowing and the object of the knowing. And so when we settle back in that understanding, then we can settle into just this flow of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, realizing that there's no one behind it to whom it's happening. Who we are is this pairwise progression. And in fact, this is what life is. Our whole life is this. In the teachings of Vipassana, this understanding, this insight, is not not a... uh, it's not some deep esoteric truth. This can, this can be understood and experienced quite early on in one's practice. You know, so it's, it's very accessible. It's just having the understanding maybe to begin to frame your experience in this way. Notice how in each, in each moment, whatever the experience is, a thought, a sound, a sensation, a breath, that whatever it is, is the knowing, and the object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. That gives, this is called, this, this insight is called in this tradition, purification of view. Because when we're in that experience, we see that there is no self behind it. It's not happening to anyone. What we are is this process. So this is one very direct way of experiencing anatta. So there's another way also. And, you know, as you hear all of this, just to the extent that you can remember any of it, (laughs) I really offer it as just, you know, explore it in your practice. Whichever one of these or several of them, you know, resonates or feel interested in, really apply it. Because the only value of this will be in your applying it. It's not just in hearing it. 
Okay, so another experiment which I really have enjoyed doing. It's really a thought experiment. And I began to value the power of thought experiments when I read a recent biography of Einstein. It was by Walter Isaacson, and it was a great book. And, and he describes a lot of his amazing discoveries. He wasn't an experimental physicist. He was a theoretical. His insights all came as thought experiments, you know, and then the mathematics around it. So I had my own little Einstein moment. <laughs> that may be a little... <laughs> But it was, it was something. <laughs> so in the teachings, in the Abhidhamma, it describes what the conditions, what conditions are necessary for the arising, for example, of seeing consciousness or hearing consciousness. Now, so it's a very clear description. These particular causes are there, conditions are there, then seeing consciousness will arise. So for that to happen, it said that we need four things. We need an eye that is in working order. We need light. We need attention. And something has to come in our field of vision. So if those four conditions are there, seeing consciousness will arise. We'll know the sight. Right? The eye, light, attention, and something crossing. So I was just walking around the loop. And I was just playing with my mind as I like to do. <laughs> so I just made the experiment, because I was seeing, as I was walking, I was just seeing. So I had, I had the little thought experiment. Well, would I be seeing if there was no light? I just, I just took different of the conditions away, you know, in, in my mind. No, if there was no light, I couldn't see anything. Or if there was no eye, I couldn't see anything. So right in that moment, and just for that moment, it was so clear the conditioned nature of consciousness. That consciousness is not something that's always there. Moment after moment, and, and very, very rapidly. You know, consciousness arising and passing, arising and passing, dependent on conditions. You take a condition away, that particular consciousness is not going to arise. And so again, it it cut through the identification with consciousness as being eyes, being self, as being a mind. It's just the result of these conditions. Take a condition away, it's gone. You can try it. It's the same thing with the hearing consciousness. You know, it's the same with all the senses. Okay, now we're shifting gear to... Uh, how this could be approached from another tradition. Just want to back up a little bit. In meditative experience and in different traditions, consciousness or awareness is described in different ways. So in some traditions, it's really described as this momentary arising and passing, arising and passing, as I described. In other traditions, awareness is described more as a field. And sometimes in the instructions, you know, might be using that kind of language, things arising in awareness, 
as if awareness is the field in which things are happening. So these are just different, you could say, metaphysical descriptions of the experience of awareness. And it reminds me somewhat of how light can be described as either a wave or a particle, <clears throat> depending how it's observed. So rather than getting caught in one is right and one is wrong, it's just sometimes we have the experience of awareness as being a field, sometimes we have it really seeing the momentariness of it. In both cases, and the reason that distinction is not that important, in both cases, the necessity is to find some way of not identifying with it. So that becomes, in some sense, easier if we're seeing the momentariness, because then it's clear, it's just arising and passing moment after moment. It's a little more difficult to not identify with the field, but there are ways to do it. And there's one very famous Zen exchange where, you know, Bodhidharma was the great master who brought Buddhism from India to China. And he was just living in his cave and facing the wall for nine years. And, and then this guy, uh, this pronunciation may be wrong. It's, it's spelled H-U-I-K-E. So I don't know, Huika. My Chinese is a little rusty. But he, he became the great disciple. Bodhidharma. So Waker comes and there is tormented. He's just in a lot of suffering. And at first Bodhidharma just dismisses him, but Waker's just really, please, please help me. So this is the dialogue. First, it's just a short, it's just a few, a few lines. And the last line is a it's a moment of, of realization, but often people hear it as a Zen witticism, and so kind of they see the, in a way, the humor or whatever. Don't listen on that level, because it's saying something very profound. And so try to listen to it on that level. So Heike comes to Bo, uh, Bodhidharma and says, you know, I'm in so much suffering. Please pacify my mind. And Bodhidharma says, show me your mind and I'll pacify it. And Hueka says, I've looked for it everywhere. I've looked for my mind everywhere and I can't find it. And Bodhidharma says, there, it's already pacified. So right there, and this is also in some of the Tibetan teachings, in the Dzogchen teachings, one of the exercises they have people do is to look for your mind. Can you find your mind? You know, and you look for it. There's nothing to find. And as one of the great Tibetan teachers said, the not finding is the finding. That's what's to be realized that it can't be found. So sometimes having, you know, really used that little dialogue, I use that in my practice, 
So especially when I'm caught up in something, you know, when the mind is just upset in some way or other, I'll just remind myself of this. You know, can I find my look for my there's nothing to find. Already pacified. And at this point I just need to use that short phrase, already pacified, because I'm so familiar with the, the dialogue. Oh, already pacified. It's amazing just by realizing the unfindable selfless nature of the mind immediately in that moment we can rest in peace. So there is a technique or exercise that I have found really helpful highlighting this aspect. And that is in the course of our practice, usually, and I'll be talking about a kind of linguistic construction, usually in our life and our experience, we language it to ourselves in the active voice. You know, I'm doing this, I'm going there, I'm whatever. There's a subject and verb, object. At one point, I started reframing experience in the passive voice. And I did this particularly in the walking. So I was just walking, you know, and instead of the sense of I'm walking, it just, I reframed the way I was experiencing it through this passive voice, sensations being known. So it's not I'm knowing the sensation, it's sensations being known. So there's a lot embedded in that. First, that linguistic construction of the passive voice takes the subject out of the picture. Sensations being known, as soon as we drop into that perspective, already the sense of self is gone. It's just, all that's there is sensations being known. Then I was doing this, so much was revealed in that, just in the, in the course of a simple step, just, just play. <laughs> if you move your arm for a moment, and just with that frame, just, just feel the sensations being known. It's effortless. It's completely effortless. There's no one doing anything. They're just being known. And the different sensations of the movement are being known perfectly and exactly. Not a moment before, not a moment after. It's just being known. And so then, going through the whole day within this framework became so easeful. It was just, throughout the whole day, it was just different things being known, arising and being known. No one's there doing anything. So if you like, for me, this completely changed, particularly the walking meditation, because the movement is so clear and obvious. And you know, so you're just walking and the sensations of the movement being known. It's very easy to get into that framework. So if it interests you at all, you know, I would just experiment with that and play with it. And at whatever point, it just becomes natural and easeful. You know, to, because there's nothing special here. You don't have to... 
there's nothing you have to kind of look for. It's just, it's just things are being known. It's so simple and so easeful. So if you do decide to play with it a little bit and you drop into that place of ease with it, then you could ask a further question. You know, once you're just in that rhythm, okay, so there's just sensations being known, and then you could drop in the question, known by what? And just known by what, there's nothing to find. So this is the great mystery of consciousness. There's nothing to find, and yet the knowing is happening. It's quite remarkable. <laughs> you know, and just what's so interesting is that it's so easy to go through our whole life and never even be investigating just this very basic aspect of what it means to be alive and to have experience and what consciousness is. And our whole practice just opens these doors. So the Austrian philosopher Wittgenstein, he had a great line about this, which is very relevant to our practice. He said, the sense of a separate self is only a shadow cast by grammar. The sense of a separate self is only a shadow cast by grammar. Our language so conditions our understanding. And that's why just this simple, this simple little play of going from active voice to passive voice, the grammar changes, the experience changes. And it really is a doorway into understanding the empty, selfless nature you know, of our lives. Everything, the experience. Okay. I can't let a retreat go by without mentioning my favorite story of the Big Dipper, <laughs> which I've been talking about for the last 40 years. So, you know, the Big Dipper is up in the sky. I'm not, I'll spare you the whole story, but. <laughs> Clearly, there's no Big Dipper in the sky. It's a concept. Right? We see a certain pattern and we put concept on it, Big Dipper. Okay. When we realize that there's no Big Dipper, that is just, it's just our own mental construct, does anything change in the sky? Everything is exactly as it always was. You could think of the concept Big Dipper as being analogous to the concept of self. The concept of self is a construct. There's, there is a certain pattern of mental physical elements. We see the pattern just like we see the pattern of stars. We put a concept on it, self, I, this is me. But in realizing that it's just a concept, everything is exactly the same. It's just we're seeing it differently. We're seeing it more clearly. And so then we operate in our lives from a much wiser place. So I'd like to close 
with two little teachings. They're both from Tibetan teachers. One, one highlights the importance of understanding that even though uh, we'd say the depth of our practice or the the liberating power of it is to see and understand the selfless nature of it all. That experience is not happening to anyone, but rather what we call self is the process, this changing process. But it's also to understand that on a relative level, we can use the concept of self. So it's not that the conventional way we understand things and the way we language things and the way we talk to one another, on that conventional level, it's fine to be using this notion. So this, this little teaching points to that. It's not that you're not real. We all think we're real, and that's not wrong. But you think you're really real. <laughs> you exaggerate it. So I like that because, yeah, we're, we're real in the conventional way that we all know. And that's fine. But we have to get to that other place of realizing we're not really real <laughs> in that way. Okay, and so this, this last piece is from Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, and it points to the connection between the realization of selflessness and love and compassion because these two are intimately related. So he said, when you realize the true emptiness of phenomena, you will spontaneously feel an all-embracing compassion for all beings who are immersed in samsara's ocean of suffering because they cling to the notion of an ego. This troublesome ego, this sense of self, which is so concerned about itself, has in reality never begun to exist. It does not exist now. And so it cannot cease to exist. That's the whole thing. It's not there in the first place. So it's not something we have to get rid of. Not the slightest trace of it can be found. When you recognize this empty nature, therefore, any notion of there being an ego to dissolve vanishes. So it's not that we have to get rid of it. And at the same time, and this is the line that just... And at the same time, in realizing the selfless nature, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. And I find that's just such a powerful and resonant teaching. The more we let go of this self-centeredness, on the most fundamental level, that sense of I am, the more we let go of that or see through it, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. And so this is our practice. This is what we're doing here. Okay, so let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.